Morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. It is Sunday, April the 2nd, 2023, first Sunday of this month. It is not April the 2nd. It's not a particularly um, infamous or noteworthy day. I mean, it may be your birthday or anniversary. You're not trying to disrespect that. But broadly, generally speaking, by and, by and large, people don't have a little star on their calendar for April the 2nd. Uh, but it is noteworthy, and it is historically significant. It was 106 years ago today that President Woodrow Wilson uh, asked Congress, back when we actually did that sort of thing, asked Congress to declare war on Germany on behalf of the United States, bringing us into a conflict that had already been going on for several years to that point, turning what was at that time a European affair into the First World War, a war that as it progressed, was so significant and humongous in its scale and its scope and certainly in the breadth of its, its fatalities that it came to be known as the Great War. We obviously weren't calling it World War I then. We didn't know the sequel was around the corner. But they called it, eventually they called it the Great War. And they called it great not because there was anything good about it, but because it was so humongous, so tremendous, so large in scope, scale, and as I say, in fatality. I have a sermon for you that... I'm going to give you the Bible. Don't worry. You're going to have to use your Bibles. You're going to have a lot of Bible verses. But what I'm doing is I'm framing the sermon around some history as it pertains to that first world war. Now, if you are not a lover of history, I am a lover of history. I hate math, but I love history. So if you are the opposite, there's the door. No, I'm just kidding. Just try and just try to write it out with me okay i'll try my best to consolidate and condense the history as necessary but the point of giving you the history and the background is to help us better appreciate the spiritual fight that we are engaged in the song that was just sung to us uh onward christian soldiers marching as to war marching as if we were in war our fight is not in this physical world ours is a spiritual fight but that spiritual fight, this great spiritual war, it has connotations and applications and parallels and parables that we can take and use from physical wars to better understand. So that's what I want to do with you this morning. I have four points to share with you. Uh, taking a lesson we can understand to better appreciate the First World War and make application to our spiritual war. It's a war that is fought, for lack of a better term, between God and the devil. We're caught in the middle. If you're not a Christian, we sing onward Christian soldier. So automatically you know if you are a Christian, you know what side of the battlefield you're on. If you're not a Christian, whether you mean to be or not, whether you want to be or not, if you're not a child of God, you are a soldier of the devil. And so by proxy, because the devil is at war with God, you have become one who is at war with God. That war has been going on for a lot longer than 106 years. That war has been going on from the beginning. So let's talk about that war. Let's make some applications to the First World War and the war that we're fighting this morning. First of all, let's appreciate this. The First World War was sparked by a death. Now, wars begin for all sorts of different reasons. They don't always have uh, a singular inciting incident. Usually, oftentimes throughout history, there's two or three things that are kind of percolating and then they all combust at the same time. Well, in this case... <coughs> Excuse me. In this case, what's going on? <coughs> in this case, you had a whole region of combustible elements and then one singular inciting incident that can easily be pinpointed because of this thing, everything else happened. And that thing was the assassination of Franz Ferdinand 
in Sarajevo, Sarajevo in 1914. But I want to set the stage for you, okay? I want to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history to help you understand just how combustible the world was at the time. If you can see on the screen behind me, you can see a map of Europe as it existed just preceding World War I. The borders, a lot of them are the same, but a lot of them are different, especially there in Central Europe. Now let me try to set the stage for you in terms of who's friends with who and who are enemies with who and so forth. Britain is friends, or Britain is enemies, I should say. Britain is antagonist and hostile and kind of rivals with Russia at the time. But Russia is allies with Serbia. Serbia at the time is an enemy of Germany who is an ally of Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary does not like France, but France likes Bulgaria, who does not like, or who likes, rather, Austria-Hungary. So it is a twisty, turny, combustible. You can see how it's just, you can't even make heads or tails of it sometimes, and neither could they sometimes, because sometimes they had allies who were enemies of their enemies, and they had enemies who were allies of their allies, and nobody knew really who they were all friends with. But over the course of about 50, 60, 70 years, all these nations had made treaties and alliances or had become antagonists with a bunch of other nations, not ever thinking, you know, if one of these nations went to war with another, a domino effect would happen, and that's exactly what happened. In Sarajevo in 1914, Franz Ferdinand, the heir apparent to the Austrian-Hungarian throne, was visiting that city. The whole southern portion of Austria-Hungary was in dispute. It was a lot of Bosnian territory, and the Bosnians wanted independence, and Austria-Hungary wanted to hold on to it. And so there were a lot of radicals and revolutionaries and insurrectionists down there trying to stir up problems, trying to win their freedom. And um, people from the south and Serbia were sending uh, nationalists in there to stir up the trouble, including a man named Gravilla Princip. We'll come back to him in a second. Well, Franz Ferdinand is making his way to Sarajevo there in that uh, tense political situation to give a speech, and assassins are waiting on him, assassins carrying bombs that they hurl at his motorcade as it's driving by the street in Sarajevo. But bombs have a fuse that take a few seconds to blow, and so they mistimed it. The bomb goes off, but the, the uh, Archduke is, is spared. Instead, the car behind him explodes, carrying some of his guards with him. So he proceeds to give his speech, which is pretty boss, if you ask me. He's, there, he's being assassinated, as he thinks. But he continues there. He gives his speech. And instead of leaving after the speech, he goes to the hospital to see his guards who had been injured on his behalf. And it just so happened that his driver took a wrong turn. And just by coincidence, his car stalls out right in front of a little deli where... Gravillo Princip is eating a turkey sandwich, who had been previously one of the guys chucking bombs at his car. Now he's out of bombs, but he's got a holster on his pocket. And he pulls out his gun, puts three rounds in the Archduke, and thus causes the conflict. Now here's the thing. Serbia funded the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. So you see the combustible element. Um, Austria-Hungary says Serbia is to blame. We want to go to war with Serbia. Now that should just be the end of it. And they said to their friends, Germany, nations have personalities. Let me give you the personality of Germany and Hungary. Hungary is more of a timid kind of friend. Germany is a bit more aggressive in the first half of the 20th century. I don't know if you're history buffs. There was a whole big thing about that. So Austria-Hungary says to Germany, hey, we want to go to war with Serbia. Will you back us up? And Germany says, sure, let's go to war with everybody. And Hungary says, just Serbia will be fine, but instead Germany declares war on pretty much Europe, and Europe declares war right back. Now you may be looking at this saying, where is America in this? The best illustration I can give you about America's role in World War I is picture all of this as a big drunken bar fight, okay, that Europe is in the middle of. 
And America is just sitting in the back, not partaking. We're just minding our own business like cowboys in the back. And in the midst of all the brouhaha, Germany accidentally spits. And the spit goes flying, and it hits us in the eye. So the cowboy America gets up, grabs a chair, smashes it over Germany's head, and that ends the fight. And we say, it's over. What do I win? And so we get to sit at the table, and we get to carve up Germany, which creates bitterness and resentment and the rise of Hitler, but that's a different story altogether. Anyway, combustible situation, you see? All it took was one match, the assassination of, of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and then all of Europe is embroiled in war, sparked by one death. Listen, in the same way, this great spiritual war that we are engaged in began in the beginning with a death. Open your Bibles to Genesis 2. I'm just going to summarize the Genesis account as it relates to this point. God makes everything. God makes man in his own image. Intending to live with man in the garden perpetually. He gives man all sorts of, of commandments and things to do and ways to occupy his time. And he gives man one singular prohibition. He says, I put a tree in the middle of the garden. I'll even put a spotlight on it so you can't miss it. You know exactly which one it is. You can have the fruit from any tree anywhere, but don't eat from that one tree right there. If you do eat from that one tree right there, the day you do, you shall die. One chapter later, as Eve and Adam, who was with her, is admiring that fruit, they have a little conversation where she recounts to him everything that God had said to them, and the devil says, you shall not surely die. The first lie told. And that lie sinks into her brain and like a virus kind of consumes her thoughts. And she begins to consider that fruit in a way she had not before. Now she begins to consider it in that standpoint of, I have a choice to make. I have an option before me. In fact, she actually does not have a choice. God didn't give her a choice. God didn't give Adam a choice. God gave Adam and Eve a command. You are not allowed to eat that fruit. That wasn't a choice, that was a command. The devil has lied to her and convinced her that she has, yeah, she has free will, but she has a command. He doesn't give him the option either way. But the devil lies and says, with your free will, you can choose not to obey a command. Yeah, you technically can, but you're not allowed to. And so Eve starts to consider that fruit. She sees how it's good to look at. She's, she's sure that it tastes sweet, and she knows it'll make her wise. The lust of the flesh starts to stir the lust of the eyes starts to stir. The pride of life starts to stir within her. And as she takes that fruit and she eats it, she gives to her husband who is just standing there letting it happen, and he eats from it as well. And you know what happens next. Man sins. And so man has to leave the garden because the, garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't the only important tree in the garden. The tree of life was also there. And man's a sinner. You don't have access to the tree of life anymore when you're on the outs with God. When you're a sinner stained by iniquity, you can't touch the tree of life, so man has to leave the garden. And God puts a cherub there, an angel, holding a flaming sword so that he, the entrance to the garden is blocked every which way. So you can't come in, and there's no uh, partaking of the tree of life from there. So from then on, man has to live outside the garden. Man has to live in these harsh elements. Man has to, as God says to them, toil and work for your labor. You have to have pain and hardship in the delivery of your children. You have to have hardship where you would have had none. More than that, you have to die where you were never supposed to. There was no cemetery in Eden. There were no tombstones there. There was not a, a place carved aside where there was no garden there where God said, that's where you'll bury your dead because they were not supposed to be dead. They were supposed to partake of the tree of life forever and live with God forever. But now they're out and now they die. 
And from Genesis 5, the whole chapter is the record of Adam's life to trace you from Adam to Noah, which is coming in chapter 6. And with each of those key uh, patriarchal figures, what you're given is the same three-word conclusion to their life. They died. And he died. This person lived, lived hundreds of years. Amazing life, no doubt they lived. But at the end of it, and he died. Over and over and over. It was not supposed to be this way. But now man is at war with God. Now God, now the devil has recruited soldiers to fight the holiness of God, and his soldiers are stained with iniquity, and thus they must die. The most tragic of all those there in the beginning was when Cain and Abel offered sacrifices. And God said, I accept this one, but I don't accept this one. With the intent being, you can come back and offer the right one. But instead, one brother kills his other brother. Out of jealousy, out of bitterness, out of hatred, whatever it was, he murders takes a life not just die of age but takes a life what's going on with the world what has happened to the world we're in genesis chapter 4 genesis chapter 5 we're at the beginning what's wrong with the world the same thing that still is the same war is being fought and the casualties are the same too man will die why because as by one man adam sin entered into the world and death by sin as a result of that death has passed upon all because all have sinned you will die because you live in what we call a fallen, death-stained, death-stricken world. There was no disease in Eden. There was no cancer in Eden. There was no murder in Eden. But now it is prevalent, predominant, dominant in this world. You die. This war that, we are, that, we, uh, that the world is engaged in with God, the sinful world is engaged in with God, was sparked by a death much like the First World War was. Second point to make for you. The First World War was fought in the trenches. Trench warfare. Maybe the most barbaric, horrific, nightmare-inducing, PTSD-causing kind of warfare that humans have ever imagined. You may, some of you in this room may have fought in war. None of you have fought in trench warfare. That was for a previous generation to have had to endure. So if you're, if you're not familiar with the concept, let me just give you the quick and dirty summary of trench warfare. You dig a hole to mark the edge of your territory. Your enemy on the other side has dug their hole to mark the edge of their territory. If you're on the offensive, you want to take their hole because you want to press forward. If you're on the defense, they want to take your hole to press forward. You've dug your hole, your trench, and you need to defend it or you need to attack it. Well, they're over there in their trench. You're in your trench. Seems like a stalemate. That's exactly right. Trench warfare makes a stalemate the first move of war. So how do you get from your trench to their trench? You have to cross the gap in between the trenches called no man's land. And the moment you stick your head out, some sniper is taking a shot at it. And so the way you get from your trench to theirs or their trench to yours is you just throw body after body after body at the problem. You throw waves of expendable human life to try to bull rush the trench in the hopes that a few of your guys can survive enough to secure the trench to move the territory forward a little bit more or back and forth. Two words best define this kind of warfare. Futility and fatality. And you read them in tandem. Fatality in terms of the sheer number of people who died. At the Battle of Somme, English generals sent 60,000 English men, English fathers, English sons, English husbands to their death, just throwing bodies at the problem in the hopes that a few thousand maybe could take the trench. At done, 380,000 French fathers Husbands, children, sons were thrown at the problem until they all died not taking the trench 
the, or until the end. The, the sense of we're just this expendable ant in a colony to be squashed in the hopes that some other ant will make it. That sense that takes over. That sense of futility that what is even the point of this for me makes you very depressed, very anxious, very shell-shocked. They didn't have PTSD by definition. They had it, but we didn't call it that. They called it shell shock, or you talk about the thousand-yard stare. That sense of just despondency at how much horror that you've seen was prevalent. Not to mention, if you're still in your trench, defending your trench, and it rains in your trench, now you're standing in ankle-deep water, filled with bacteria, filled with blood, filled with mud, and you would get what's called trench foot, where your foot would just rot, and sometimes it would fall off. It was horrifying, graphic, disturbing. And if you were one of the few lucky ones to make it from one trench to the next, guess what? There's another trench you have to take. And eventually, you don't make it past two or three. It's not going to happen. Futility. Fatality. That's trench warfare. In the same way, the battle that we fight, our battle with Satan as Christians, the, the devil's fight against God, he wants it to be as ugly, as sloppy, as debilitating as possible. This is what trench warfare looks like in the spiritual battlefield. Notice what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10. through 10. But we're going to read it in a particular kind of way. I'm going to skip a bit here and skip a bit there before I come back and fill in the gaps. But look at 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10 through 10, and listen to what trench warfare the mind-breaking battle against good and, uh, in between good and evil sounds like from the pen of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. We are troubled on every side. Skip a bit. We are perplexed. Skip a bit. We are persecuted. Skip a bit. We are cast down. Skip a bit. We are always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, a phrase which means we are, every time we live, we are on the verge of doing what Jesus did, which is dying for God's will. So we are a people who are troubled, full of anxiety, full of concerns, full of problems that have distressed us. That's what he says we are. We are perplexed, wondering why does this have to happen? Why is this so bad? When is this ever going to get any better? We are perplexed. We are persecuted, pressured. Pressured by the world to break, to give in, to conform. We are cast down, knocked down, in the hopes that we won't get back up, and if we try, they'll kick us in the gut. We are always at risk of dying. That's trench warfare of a spiritual kind. That is this sense that if you, if you are not careful, the sense of futility, what's even the point? It's hopeless, we're not going to make it, can come into play. But that's not all Paul says, is it? You skipped a bit. So let's read it again. We are troubled on every side, but not distressed. We have good reason to be full of anxiety, but we're not going to be. We're choosing not to be in distress. We are perplexed. We have good reason to ask why, but we are not going to be in despair. We are uh, persecuted, pressured of heart for heart, from hardship and the desire to break and conform to the world, but we are not forsaken. You, The world is pressuring us, but if Christ is our general. Christ is on our side. We are cast down, knocked down, down, but not out, not destroyed. Yes, we are bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, but we do so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our body. We are always at risk of dying as Jesus died. Fine, so be it. What happened when they killed him? He got up three days later. What will happen to you if they kill you? Same thing on his time clock. 
That's what trench warfare looks like to the Christian. Here's another verse that summarizes it. Look at Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Notice what Paul says here. Be full of anxiety. The King James says careful. Be full of cares, concerns, worries over nothing. Listen, the same author who wrote that also wrote in previous texts, I am full of anxiety. Even your master said, I am full of anxiety in the days preceding his crucifixion. It's going to happen. What you're told not to let happen is you stewing over it, letting it get worse, letting it fester so that it rots, not your physical body, but your heart, your mind, your soul, your desire to serve because you start to think it's impossible. Don't stew in it. But rather, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, because you're in the midst of being perplexed, so this passes understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. You're in the middle of a trench. It's nasty. It's muddy. It's bloody. It's dangerous. You feel like you're about to die. What's your attitude? It should be, so be it. I get to live with Christ. If they take my life, that's an express lane to Jesus. If they let me live, I will continue working for Christ. Either way, I'm going to do what I'm here to do. My attitude is going to be positive, not negative. Or to summarize it in one simple line written by Peter, cast all your concerns, your worries, your troubles, your anxieties. You have them, so it's not a sin to have them. What you do with them is what matters. Cast them all to Christ. Because he is concerned about you. He cares for you. He's on your, you're on his mind. I like the poetic way it's worded here. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. We fight in trenches and it's not pretty. Third point. World War I was a fight that evolved with the times. I chose this picture, if you can see it behind me, of a tank and a dead horse for a reason. Because World War I is, in terms of history, it wasn't a very long conflict. But in terms of how much the advancement in technology happened, it was unlike any other. World War I was a war that began where it was commonplace for horse-mounted cavalry, uh, fought by soldiers with swords for close combat and rifles for long-range combat, was a commonplace battle strategy. That's at the beginning. By the end of the war, they were using armored tanks and firing mustard gas at people. To go from there to there was unlike any stretch of, of human history in terms of advancement in technology and different ways we came up with to kill each other. It was remarkable. And it's a big reason why there were so many fatalities in that war. Because you had old generals who didn't know how to fight a new war. Thus they kept throwing bodies at the problem until something broke. Listen, in the same way, this fight that we are fighting with the devil has evolved with the times. There are ways that you have been tempted, that we have been tempted for 2,000 years or more. There are ways you've been tempted that was simply impossible 20 years ago. The devil is very old, but he is not behind the times. In fact, he is the author of the times. Evil men and seducers will wax, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the playbook of the devil from the garden. You shall not surely die. The deception of the devil and the way that he deceives and what he does to deceive has evolved with the times. You hold in your hands the means to fight the temptation of the devil. Everyone hold up your Bibles. You hold in your hands the means to fight the temptation of the devil. Everyone hold up your cell phones. You hold in your hands the devil's means to tempt you. Not easy anymore. 20 years ago, your phone was, or maybe, I'm a little old, maybe 30 years ago, your phone was stuck on the wall and had a rotary on it. 
And there's still some sin you could do with it, but it was a lot harder and a lot less prevalent than it is today. Sin has evolved. Temptation to sin has evolved. But the solution is timeless, and it will never change. That means once you learn the playbook, it's always going to be the same. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Submit yourselves to God, and the devil will run away. Draw near to Christ, he'll draw near to you. And if you do sin, and you will sin, and it may be that you sin because the playbook of the devil keeps evolving, keeps finding new ways to attack you, you may end up sinning in a way you never thought you would ever sin. Fine, get in line. When it happens, cleanse your hand, you sinner. Purify your heart, you double-minded. That's not time-specific. That's not era-appropriate. That's timeless. It doesn't matter what the devil does. He'll keep coming up with new ways to fight him. Fine. The way you fight him has never changed and never will. It evolves with the times, but this is timeless. Last point, then I'm done. World War I. You can't talk about the war without talking about the Christmas truce. World War I had a little brief moment for one night where people stopped fighting each other. I'm not going to belabor this point because I talked about this this past Christmas, the Christmas truce and all of that, how soldiers on both sides of the battlefield stopped to celebrate Christmas together and they played soccer and they exchanged cigarettes and food and chocolate and things like that. And then it's, it was a spontaneous thing that spread in various front lines across the war and then word got back to the generals who said, if it happens again, shoot them on sight. The war must continue. Listen, the war that we are in the middle of, that we as soldiers on one side of the fence or the other are in the middle of, this war between God and the devil has peace that's been offered. But the peace that's been offered, the truce that's been presented, has not been presented, presented from God to the devil. The devil's not offering terms of surrender. God is not offering a peace treaty with the devil. No, the truce, the peace has been offered to the devil's soldiers. It was extended formally when Jesus was born. And the angel sang in chorus, announcing his birth to the shepherds keeping watch over the flock by night, saying, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with that angel the whole multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, and on earth goodwill to the devil. No, he's a loser. He's already lost the fight. He chose to fight. He already lost. The war is over. He's just fighting battles because he's a sore loser. On earth peace and goodwill to you, soldier of the devil. You get the chance to lay down your arms and join a winning side. Because you may not realize this, but if you're not fighting with God, you're fighting against God. You're fighting on the devil's side, and he's already lost. He is still a ravenous lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. But he is a loser. He has lost the war. The moment the angel said, he is not here, he is risen, that was their way of announcing the war is over. Now you may not have gotten the memo. You may have been lied to. You may have been told there's still a chance you can win and keep living your way and sinning your way and having your way. But no, no, it's God's way has won. Stop fighting for the devil. Surrender and come to Christ. He offers you peace. His peace he leaves with you. His peace he gives you. Not worldly peace, which is a fickle thing. That's not what he gives you. He offers you a peace that lets your heart no longer be troubled, nor be afraid. So turn to Jesus Christ. Surrender to him. To surrender to Jesus is to give your life over to him. You do that by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. How do you do that? 
Turn your, away, turn your mind away from your sins. Commit yourself to serving Him instead of the devil. Repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38, for the remission of your sins. Believe Him and be baptized for His salvation, Mark 16.16. 16. Do that and join a winning side. and Christ will carry you to victory, your victory, forevermore. If you are a Christian but you've sinned, repent and turn back. Let us have the opportunity to encourage you, to motivate you, to keep you fighting on the right winning side. If we can help you in some way, let us know how right now. Please come as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash matthew-martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.